Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the films of 1999 from a lawn chair on top of a platform, on top of four ladders, on top of another platform, on top of a roof overlooking San Francisco here <laughs> in 2020. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Phil Isco. What I love about that is that like 10 people have seen this movie. So like that joke really plays for like That's why I really had to, to paint <laughs> the visual picture. Um, but one of the 10 people who have seen this movie is our guest, Chandler LeVac, Indeed. Uh writer, director. She is also a um, critic for the Globe and Mail. Um, that's in Toronto. Uh, though I, my understanding it's is in not Canada. Supposed, my understanding is you're not supposed to call it where it's from, but that's just, you know, that's the American movie. Chandler, thank you for coming. Good to see you. <laughs> thank you. I'm so honored to be here. As a, one of an exclusive club, yes, of people uh, that have watched Guinevere. Guinevere yeah, heads. I, I think you could just call us the Guineveres. <laughs> I mean, by the way, the other I seven mean, people will love that joke. Uh, <laughs> um, so, Chandler, thank you so much for being here. Um, and I know that you had not seen this movie, um, and I, I. I don't want to say I suggested it, but I guess I kind of suggested it. The Sarah Pauly of it all, you know, Canada, all of that. Um, but I don't know, like, am I crazy? But this movie's kind of great. Yeah, it's it's one of those movies I feel like I'd seen the the DV, the VHS cover. Like, it's like emblazoned in my brain, you know? I feel like I walked past Guinevere um, uh, through, like, the 
blockbusters of, of decades and eons. Sure. And I, I guess I always thought the movie was a completely different movie than what it was. Like, I guess I thought it was kind of fanciful, like almost like a, um, like the Princess Diaries or something. Oh, <laughs> yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like a really like romantic kind of fantasia, but it's it's actually like an acid satire of like men's um, projections on women and, and, and like the sick twisted games they play with, with manic pixie dream girls. Yeah, I th- yeah. I think you just nailed it. Uh, I don't. Th- you're, I don't think you're crazy, Phil. I think this movie is tremendous. Um, I, I, I knew nothing. This has been on our list from the beginning, right? So, yeah. I just kind of went to every. I went. I, I basically went to three separate Wikipedia pages in the beginning of this, and mm-hmm. pulled anything that could be called a 1999 movie, and threw it on our list. And among those are things that I've never heard of, including sure. Guinevere. Uh, never heard of it. Ever, ever, ever. Um, probably <laughs> probably thought we were never actually going to do it. Yes. I'm so happy we did. I can't I, – I mean I, I'm going to spend the next two hours trying to explain why I loved this movie so much. But I didn't just like it. I loved this movie. It was yeah. – here's what I think. We do a lot on this podcast, you know, 20 movies are 21 years old. We do a lot of, we do a lot of pointing out, and I don't know if we're that proud of this anymore, Phil, but a lot of pointing out uh, how problematic. Were, were we proud at some point about think, it? Or yeah, not really? I think at the beginning of the podcast, like we were like, American Beauty's problematic. And we were really excited about that. Or American Pie is problematic. Look, we, yeah. we, we Toxic figured it masculinity. Out. Yeah, we yeah. figured it out. You guys did yeah. not get what we were doing back then. Okay. This movie is not that problematic through a 2020 lens because it's dealt with so matter-of-factly, non-judgmentally. Um, it made me it made me look at a relationship like this, older man, younger woman, in a lot of different ways. And I think that before this movie was made, I'd say from the beginning of time until about 1998, um, older man, younger woman relationships were just kind of considered an okay thing, a thing that happened. Yeah, and I some think people it, still think they're okay. Well, Woody Allen movie, you know? Yes, 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 yes. Your like relationship construct. Some people still still think they're okay, and put a pin in that thought for a second. Yeah. Um. In the last three, four, five, maybe ten years, we've started to use the term "predator" when talking about an older man and a younger woman who is of age. Um, or grooming too seems to be a new thing. Well, too. grooming tends to be younger than that. The I, I believe yeah. the idea with grooming is a a a man who like knows that he shouldn't be sleeping with Lolita just yet. But once she turns 18, he will have implanted so many thoughts into her head about how wonderful he is. He concepted her with his greatness. Which is kind of what it is. And I've seen arguments. There's an argument that that this movie I think is making. That's a very unpopular argument this day. But I think is worth making. Which is 
people are allowed to make their own choices. And just because a man is 54 and a woman is 21 doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship is toxic. Now, there are toxic elements to this relationship, no doubt about it. And he does some horrible things to her over the course of this relationship. But it's nuanced enough and it contains it, it contains both points of view in a way. And it's Sarah Polly's performance is really helpful in this respect where you don't walk away thinking you just watched a story about a predatory monster. You also watched a story – you also watched kind of a heartbreaking love story um, that – where your heart actually kind of breaks for how sad this older man is in the end of the day um, and why he feels his need, the, the need to do that. So there's so many instances and, 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 and little, little moves that the director, Audrey Wells, made to kind of clue you into where your sympathy should lie, where your empathy should lie, and, and how afraid you should be for Sarah Polly's character throughout that we'll get into. But, um, but yeah, I, I, was, I was fucking blown away by it, like straight up. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's so – I was the, of the three of us. I'm the only one that saw this film back in something close to '99. I don't know if it was actually in 1999. I can't but, believe um, you've seen I mean, this. Wow. Uh, I, I mean, I saw it because I mean, I love Sarah Polly, and I was like, Sarah Polly is in a movie. She wasn't in that many of them, so I was <laughs> like, this is exciting. Um, and I remember watching it and thinking that she was great. Um, <clears throat> and my recollection of it, looking backwards ultimately is i remember it had a downer of an ending i remember that he died i remember that there was this 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 sort of black cloud over it and that it didn't end the way that i thought it was going to i went into it back then thinking the same thing which is this an older guy younger woman very kind of woody allen-esque in terms of this like you know artistry and find your inner voice and all this kind of stuff that he projected onto her um and I liked it fine, but like it didn't leave a tremendous impact on me. But I remember thinking Sarah Polly was great. So watching it, like going into this watch for this episode, I was worried. Like I was like, is this movie, and I, I hate to use the term, Kenny, but is this movie going to be problematic? Like was did I watch this movie in 99 and think nothing of it and now today it's predatory and gross and terrible? But to exactly what you guys are saying, Audrey Wells finds a way to sort of, you know – cut the legs under from out that argument and really turn him into this very tragic character. Uh, you know, the, the, the Gene Smart character, which we'll talk about is tremendous. She gives an unbelievable performance and, and has a scene that just, I think cracks this movie wide open. I, it's just, it's really, it's a much more impressive movie, especially now um, yeah, in terms of, you know what I mean? In terms of how, how, um, you know, smartly, it it sort of dodges these landmines, and and I guess you know, Chandler, with you, you know, you're a writer director. Um, you know, you you obviously uh, you have you know, I've read I've read your recent script, and it's great. It has a male character. It has you know, when you're writing men, do you you know, how do you sort of approach that so that giving them the sort of multiple dimensions? Because I feel like. Man, a man writing this movie, a man writing and directing this movie is going to be a very, very different exercise is my point. And I guess I just want to what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, something I've been thinking about a lot because I feel like, um, I mean, Audrey Wells, I think is a really interesting filmmaker. And before this, she'd written the screenplay to The Truth About Cats and Dogs. 
which Indeed. is a little bit um, of a subversive uh, romantic yeah. comedy as well that centers, you know, Janine Garofalo and really points out the kind mm-hmm. of the insecurities and flaws of the Uma Thurman character. Um, and I feel like it's just such a shame that more people don't know about this movie as like an er, you know, feminist kind of masterpiece yeah. because it totally slipped through my fingers. And I wonder how much of that was just like the marketing that the wine scenes were doing at the time of the film or lack thereof. The trailer, like it really yeah. makes it look like it really does lean into that kind of like May, December romance, Woody mm-hmm. Allen fantasy of it all. And then you watch it and it's actually like, a. Uh, a pretty subversive like criticism of that where it's kind yeah. of pointing at like kind of the bleak realities of, of, of what this experience would actually be like for this woman. And it is a coming of age story for her. And I think for him too, but it's like at the end, like she kind of just accepts it. Um, but back to your yeah. point. Yeah, no, please, please. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I have been thinking about that a lot because I think a lot of times when, when women make movies, um, because I think there is such a lack of female representation in cinema for so long where women got to be kind of the center of their own stories. You're sort of positioned that if you are making kind of a, a feature film as a female writer director, you're going to have a female protagonist at the center of it. But I think there actually is like the next gap of representation maybe for women making movies is to write male characters because I think women writing stories about men is really essential. And, um, you know, having women see men and, and and tell the stories through a male perspective, but also creating maybe male stories that are how women see men, you know, uh, is really important to me um, and challenging. I mean, in my case, I'd mostly either write them based on the guys that I know or just write me and then the male person is always crying. <laughs> so I don't know if I'm writing like really, yeah. you know, wonderful male characters. Like writing you, writing me, them. who knows? I mean, it's like a- yeah, they always have cramps in the middle of the movie for no reason for a few days and, um, but I think, but ultimately, um, and and to sort of piggyback on what you're saying here, you know, I, I think that Audrey Wells, who, you know, Truth About Cats and Dogs, she wrote that, she directed, she wrote and directed Under the Tuscan Sun. She also yeah. directed, um, relatively recently, she did The Hate You Give and unfortunately yeah. passed away shortly uh, wrote around its release. Give. Yeah. Um, she, you know, she, she was a really interesting filmmaker that I think was sort of deceptively kind of put in this box, at least with Truth About Cats and Dogs, Under the Tuscan Sun and, and Guinevere mm-hmm. of like, rom-com like that's where you need to be in that kind of box yeah and i think that that they are deceptive in terms of that seeming like what they're about well that's where a lot of nicole hollipson's career or like yes yes that's very yeah i don't know how to say her name but yes like yeah nicole and that would have been amazing she could have had been like the female woody allen and if there's like a alternate timeline totally and it's that I mean, this movie won the Waldo Waldo Salt Screenplay Award at Sundance. Yeah. When oh, that's cool. Here. Okay. Um, so, she, you look at her filmography on IMDb, and I completely for I, I actually I, I mean, look, I've already kind of said how much I like this movie. I like it better than anything um, Nicole Hall Center or uh, Lisa Charles Danko has ever done. I, I think I I think this is a better film. This this is really really strong to me mm-hmm. um 
the the thing about looking at Audrey Wells' career is she clearly had a very successful career. When you write so many different studio movies and so many different genres, you're clearly on their speed dial, and you're one of the people they call to adapt certain um, pieces of IP to rewrite certain scripts that aren't working. She had the respect of of the people in Hollywood you want the respect of. What this movie seems like, because I don't think this really falls into the Tuscan Sun or um, Cats and Dogs category. No. This movie seems like her attempt to say, um, when I make a movie, you know, soup to nuts, this is what they're going to look like. And I want the opportunity to make movies like this. And I, as usual, I blame Harvey Weinstein for not, for not recognizing what he had here because a movie like this breaks through almost entirely because of the marketing campaign. Almost be critical, critical um, praise, which this movie had things like the Waldo Salt Screenwriting Award at Sundance, which is movie one, and then strong marketing campaigns highlighting those things and highlighting why this is essential. And it failed and it tanked her career as a potentially really exciting indie director, which is clear to me that's what she wanted. That's why you make a movie like this at this point in your career. And probably had an incredibly lucrative career directing studio movies. <clears throat> I, I think that it's, I, I think I agree with everything you're saying. I also just feel like just to, to touch on this for a second, because you know Chandler and I have talked about this a little bit <clears throat> before uh, just in terms of around this film and what have you, but also our mutual love of almost famous. This is a moment. We're witnessing the moment when Sarah Pauly says, I don't want to be a movie star. She makes go. She makes this movie both in 99 and then shortly thereafter, she's offered Almost Famous. She basically gets the one yard line on Almost Famous and then decides that she doesn't want that career and more power to her. Like, I, I think that that's I think the films that she's written and directed are, are magnificent. I think she's a tremendous actor when she acts. She's a tremendous writer, director when she does that, too. But I think that that mixed with the story she's told about the Harvey Weinstein component of of her not willing to play his game, whatever that might very well have entailed. I think all of these things lead to this film not getting the support that it needed to in terms of its release, in terms of the way that this film should have been marketed. Um, and that's all you know, sad and, and disappointing because I think that this, this is a really special movie that kind of gets lost in this you know, undertow of, of you know, added to the list of Harvey Weinstein you know, shitty situations. But it's such That's a wonderful performance. And I think, you know, even in her taste and casting, you can see that Audrey Wells is like a no tour. I mean, oh, for sure. Great cast. Yeah, yeah. We could talk about this more, but I like, I was thinking about this movie and like, what would it be like if the actors instead were like, uh, I don't know, like Antonio Banderas or George Clooney in the Stephen Ray role. Yeah. And like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think of like an actor, like Claire Forlani or something. Playing, they made uh, the movie. They made the movie you're pitching. It's called Autumn <laughs> in New York. <laughs> Richard Gere and Winona Ryder. Yeah. Yeah. One of the worst yeah. movies ever made. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, to, to your point, Chandler, because I, I think that this is worth highlighting, the, the bench on this movie is really deep. You've got Tracy Letts in this film. Mm-hmm. You have uh, Carrie Preston in this movie. Obviously, Gene Smart, who we've talked about. Like, this is, this movie is really well cast. Sorry? Sandra O, oh, who likes yeah. Sandra O, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Catherine yeah. Guy. 
<clears throat> Jasmine guy, sure. Uh, it, it's 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 a really interesting movie, and oh, and I, you know, who's really good. She is great. She's and I would argue she's always great. The best. Yeah, she, Gina Gershon. Whenever she's in a movie, even if it's a movie like Showgirls, mm-hmm. it's she. She's just so Gina Gershon, and I mean that in the best way. <laughs> She's just so singular. She's so exciting. She's, she's a, like she's a lecture. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, it's not like I want a quote unquote better or bigger career for her. I love what we get from her and I love how we get it from her. Uh, it's hard. It's almost like Joe Pesci. Like, God, I wish I had so much more, but like, I really appreciate what we have. You know? <laughs> well, you I also, in, uh, Rifkin's festival, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, Chandler and I were texting about this, and Kenny. I, I mean, this is this is one of your favorite games, so I'm sure that you'll uh, you'll enjoy this part of it. Um, but we were like debating whether or not Stephen Ray is miscast in this movie, and I think we both kind of came to the conclusion that he is <laughs> that he's not like totally right for the role. Um, Chandler and I we talked about uh, uh, Casey Affleck and Ben Affleck. Um, yeah, like we about a modern update. But you know who I was thinking was, of on the way yeah. before this podcast while I was walking my dog is uh, Matthew McFadden from Succession. That's who I want. That's, in, that's interesting. <laughs> Matthew McFadden that's would be with the with the British accent. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So is Stephen Ray miscast? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. I'll, I'll make I'll make my argument for him. I haven't. I mean, I'm not. By the way, I don't think that he's like. I think he's fine in this, but I think that there's someone else that could have maybe done it better. I I like like, because he's realistic. Like the fantasy of it is Richard Gere in his loft, and he's you know, um, you're making Tibetan sculptures or something together. So or like Michael Douglas of like guys like this who are creepily grooming women that they meet and when they're wedding photographers and uh, taking secret photos of them. Is that they do look and act like Stephen Ray, and it's five years of emotionally supporting Stephen Ray and telling him you're a genius, and you know, yeah. feeling sorry that he can't get a coffee table book published, and um, you know, uh, so that's, supporting that's, his Patreon account. And so that's, that's like the that's reality, the, the beauty of this movie. So I'm gonna go. I, I'm, I'm gonna do my little attempt to defend <laughs> an actor that I've never defended in any role. <laughs> Um, and if anybody doesn't know who Stephen Ray is, he's the lead in the Crying Game. Yes, yeah, he's the, he's he was the, in an interview with the Vampire as well. But yeah, well, he's the, you know weird choice. He's an he's an Irishman, um, and he's an ugly Irishman, and I think that that's important. <laughs> so, I I I tend I I think I tend to think about or openly discuss the attractiveness mm-hmm. of characters not so much the actors playing them but the attractiveness of the relative attractiveness of characters within the context of a piece of work more than most because i'm of the opinion that it's incredibly important in society um and i think well it's not important for the average person but like i'm i'm not breaking your ground to say that um there is a certain privilege that comes with being an attractive person and I think that movies sometimes, at least modern movies, shy away from this. This movie does not. He is he is called out at least twice for being plain or <laughs> ugly. And 
I think, sure. and I, and I think you know we're we're kind of dancing around it by by comparing him negatively to uh, Clooney or an Affleck brother or something like that. Like those guys, those guys play play to me a little more single white female-y or you know that those type of movies where you oh. can't believe how good it's going with this you know handsome erudite you know artist man, and then oh my god he's a loser. But it's all on the surface with this character. But he also needs to have what he has. Would Stephen Ray can bring you the role that a lot of people couldn't, which is he can sell the the pretentious, mostly legitimate sophistication this character needs in order to seduce this um, young woman. He needs to have something. He can wear an he could wear a scarf like <laughs> like he like like he knows what he's doing. He can take a beautiful picture that uh, uh-huh. that, that someone was someone someone said the pictures were good enough, which I think oh it was Ebert, but you know yeah. the pictures were fine. I don't know anything about photography. He's, lady boobs, you know. He 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 knows yeah, a boob when he sees one. He knows how to shoot a boob. There is just there is something about him, and I and 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 uh, I'll finish this point. I will drop the mic. He fits into this very small band. Of being attractive enough that a woman like Sarah Polly could walk down the street with him and feel good about herself, but not mm-hmm. so attractive that society is handing him shit. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a that. very big deal for this kind of character because Gene, when Gene Smart dresses him down, a lot of it yeah. is you need someone who can worship you, and someone like me would never worship you. Um, yeah, she says, you know, what do young women have that women my age don't? It's it's awe. And mm-hmm. I do think about that a lot because I remember when I was like, you know, in my very young 20s, I'm in like my mid-30s now, um, I would have like, uh, I, w- I mostly dated like men in their 30s or approaching 30s and they would always be like, oh, you're so, you're so mature. And I was like, I guess I'm just a very mature person. <laughs> And now that I'm in my mid thirties, I realize what I, I wasn't probably. And also what I have, I think is like a real naiveness and like a, you know, a loft apartment goes a long way when you're like a a 20 year old and uh, being able to wear a a turtleneck and stuff. Um, There's also like, there's the, there's the social component too, right? Like when he takes her to that bar with all the friends and like she, it's, it's just, he's, it's, you know, he's seducing her on his life, less so on his appearance and well, who he is. For a and certain person. I will say about the movie that I do think is a weak spot is that her character, although Sarah Polly does like an incredible job at sort of filling mm-hmm. in the gaps and the first scene where he seduces her on the couch, like just the layers of hesitation yeah. and like desire, but like being freaked out and uncomfortable at the scene. It's just like a masterful performance like i read a review with roger ebert and he said the whole movie could be just said about that look and flash of emotions on her face yeah such a great i mean she's a she's a tremendous actor uh she she really really is what she what she can do with with what are you gonna say about the flaw oh yeah Uh, i just think her character is a little bit underdeveloped like you see her at this wedding she doesn't want to be photographed she's hiding in the you know pantry because she's so afraid of the way that she looks you know she's supposed to go to harvard medical school Law school, yeah. 
Harvard Law School. Law School, yeah. And she like she got in, but she's hiding it from her parents, and she doesn't know what she wants to do with her life. But then the movie that just what she wants to do with her life just becomes a big question mark, and she's thrown into this relationship. She has one friend, which I really do appreciate that she has one female friend that you see throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, like, you know, he's supposed to be shaping her into this great art artist, but like five years goes by and she doesn't even have the confidence to take a photograph. So it's just like, it's very weird because it's like the scenes, yep. the movie really is so invested in him. And it's almost like the movie undermines like the female subjectivity, because even though it's a critique of like, women in relationships with men and, and, and kind of basing their whole identity on this guy that's kind of grooming them and shaping them into being kind of a mirror image of himself. It's still like the movie doesn't even want to investigate the female protagonist that's having that experience at the same time. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to, I want to agree that the, the moment at the end, and we're going to jump around obviously, but the moment at the end where we find out that she's a successful professional photographer is such an afterthought Yeah, that it's, it's odd that we don't really get a sense of, of her success professionally. But I agree. I wish it, I mean, I think Ebert said it, but I felt the same way. Like there is something so powerful about the scene when she leaves him or when he like kind of gets her to leave him mm-hmm. and he's in the window and he's no longer in the window. And it was yeah. just it was so heartbreaking. And what, what you, I think what you desire as an audience member for Sarah Parley at that point is for her to go a third way, you know, obviously her, her family is toxic and obviously this relationship was toxic, you know, um, it was toxic in the exact opposite way, which made her feel for a while like the hole in her heart was being filled. Mm-hmm. But um, neither of these things worked. And the only person that she really could rely on at that point was herself. And that sounds like a cliche, but I think that's true. And I do wonder what that third way would have been for the character. But I do think that there is something to the idea that she became a photographer. There is something to the idea that like I, I don't think the movie is so clearly saying that this is a bad man as much as this is a sad right. man, um, and that yeah. he was totally wrong as much as like there was good there, but only as it like like only as a byproduct of of how it benefited himself, mm-hmm. right? So like I think all right so. The scene you were talking about, the scene where they, um, the first time he's with Tracy Letts and the rest of their friends, and they're talking about, I mean, he's, you know, to his great credit, Stephen Ray is 20 years ahead on, um, on, you know, white people writing black characters and cultural <laughs> appropriation and, and, and such. Um, that scene is a, that scene is wish fulfillment. That is like the group of friends that I always wish I had, right? The people who sit around, get drunk, and talk about interesting things. And only occasionally have had it. But I, I, I get it on this podcast all the time. <laughs> uh, his wish fulfillment is, you know, what Gene Smart was saying, is to have someone look at him with awe, but also to have someone to mentor, right? And mm-hmm. I do think he would have taken great pride in her success as an artist, as it reflected upon himself. But that is a good yeah. byproduct if she actually feels, if she actually feels like she has succeeded. 
Her pictures of boobs are far surpass his. The f- top notch, <laughs> the be- best in the biz. Um, I'm 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 just gonna read the synopsis uh, of Guinevere for our listeners who haven't watched it, which I imagine is most of them. Uh, Harper Sloan, played by Sarah Polly, is a young woman from a privileged background who feels stifled by her family. When she meets Connie Fitzpatrick, played by Stephen Ray, an older man who's a photographer, she's intrigued and tempted to run away with him to become his muse and apprentice. She then finds out a bit of uh, he's a bit of a cad and returns to her family, but not for long. The couple decide to go off to Los Angeles together, and along the way, Harper finally begins to chase her dream of being an artist. This film was written and directed by Audrey Wells, as we mentioned. It opened on September 24th, 1999, against Double Jeopardy, Jacob the Liar, Mumford, and Simon Says. It's a real murderer's wow. row of a weekend. Um, it would go on to make $660,000 on a $2 million budget. Uh, it has 86% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 54% from audiences. I'm just going to read a quick snippet of the Ebert review. He gave it three and a half out of four stars and said, despite all the PT of conventional opinion, people will insist sometimes on falling in love with inappropriate partners. Not No thoughtful person is ever looking for an appropriate partner in the first place. They're looking for the solution to their own needs and dreams. If you find what you need, that's the partner you want. No matter what your partner, sorry, no matter what your parents or society tell you, have and help the spouse who's been chosen for appropriateness. Writing these words, I realized that Guinevere tells the same story as American Beauty with the ages and sexes reversed. The middle-aged Kevin Spacey character lusts for a high school cheerleader for the same reason that Harper knocks on the photographer's door. What you, what they both seek is affirmation that they are good, unique, and treasured. If you can find that in a lover, you can pick up, you can put up with a lot. There's a horrible, perfect, brilliant moment in this film when Harper's society bitch mother, played by Jean Smart, finds out that their relationship and comes to call. She stalks the shabby loft in her expensive clothes and smokes a cigarette with with such style that she that he puts out his own. That's a great and in icy little disdain, thing. She says, "What do you have against women your age?" And answers her own question. I know exactly what she has that I haven't got. Ah, she's right, but you can't blame him. To be regarded with awe can be a wondrous aphrodisiac. It's a very interesting review from Ebert, and I would I would uh, tell our listeners to to read the whole thing because I do think that this movie grapples with a lot of stuff that I don't feel like, and I don't want to speak for you, Kenny, but I feel like Ebert's spotty on some of this stuff in the reviews that we've read in '99. I feel like his review of American Beauty is a a perfect example of sort of I don't want to say a misinterpretation, but just kind of. He just got it wrong on, on American Beauty, and yet somehow he gets it right on this one, which I thought was interesting. I agree with you, man. I, I, it was, I had the exact same feeling reading this, particularly because he references American Beauty in this review. <laughs> I, didn't, and I'm, I didn't think about American Beauty once watching this. Um, Neither did I. Uh, I, I. And I can't really you know, cognitively understand why I didn't make that connection. Same year and kind of you know, similar premise. I don't, ages and genders reversed. It's not. It's the same ages and yeah. genders. I don't know what he's talking about. But um <laughs> but uh it um it just it the, the thing about American Beauty that will always bother me was the the lack of judgment at all. Um mm-hmm. and not only not only that I think that they were rooting Kevin Spacey's character on throughout the movie. Hundred percent. But there was a lack of judgment, and if anything, they were saying this is what you need to regain your male virility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, this movie is full of judgment, but I think comes down on the side of yeah, there are really bad, really fucked up situations here, 
But in the end of the day, these were two people who were honest with each other and who Mm -hmm. were honest with themselves about what they thought they needed at that time in their life on an emotional level and not on a sexual level. Mm -hmm. Um, And that lack of judgment I found beautiful because then we could make our own judgments on the situation um, that like we're doing now in the podcast that, that, that doesn't sound like the movie neglected to, to call out the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 I mean, listen, I don't want to relitigate American beauty again, but I'll just say that um, this movie is just so much more cognizant of uh the layers in the relationship between these two people and the the wants and desires and why they want these things. Um, I, I, I feel like on, on, unfortunately American beauty just is very binary. Um, whereas this film um, is embracing the messiness and the sort of lack of definition that can come from a relationship like this between two people. Um, and perhaps this is also a symptom of, you know, Studio versus indie a little bit, you know, American Beauty is a big studio movie, even if it sort of kind of was positioned as not being, it kind of was um, or is. And this film feels a lot more specific in its vision and specific in what it wants to say. Um, And, you know, yeah, there's just the the, the trappings of a studio. Like if this was, let's just say this, if this was made by a studio, we just wouldn't get this movie. Like it would just, it would just be far less nuanced far less messy. Um, it wouldn't have this bummer of an ending, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure that there's any number of things that they would have changed about this, which is what make this what makes this film so special. Well, this also foregrounds female subjectivity in a way that I don't think American Beauty has the time or interest in doing. Like, American Beauty feels to me like a John Updike novel or something. Like, it, it really is this, like, male yeah. wish fulfillment fantasy. And you're always aligned on Kevin Spacey's side. And, and he deserves to get everything because he's been kind of castrated and persecuted in response to kind of the forces of capitalism. And uh, in this movie, there's like so much nuance and subjectivity in um, the Sarah Pauly character. And she actually has her own agency, you know, and even though she is trapped in this kind of grooming relationship, she has way more power and control. She tries to leave him halfway through the movie and comes back to him and, and and you feel like um, even if she's sort of um, in this relationship and some people might and all the other women around her and her family are saying kind of like you're trapped and you're going to be in this for five years. And, at, you know, what at the end, what do you get out of it? She kind of wants that experience and she's searching for something bigger than herself and her family and an identity. And, and he offers that to her. I keep thinking with the movie and education, too, which I think is. Oh, really sure, sure. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. That, no, I absolutely see that. Yeah, I mean, I, would, I, I fully agree with you on the American beauty of it all. You know, I remember when Kenny and I did the episode, you know, one of Kenny's very astute observations is how kind of vicious they are to Annette Benning's character in that movie. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. it is, it, it's a, it's a, a brutal joke. indictment of that character. Yeah. Um, sexuality and, and kind of repulsive. All of yeah. it, all of it. Yeah. I mean, and, and the same thing can be said, obviously for, for the Thora Birch character and the Mina Suvari character as well. I mean, I don't think that they're not really given much. I mean, Thor is given a little bit of agency, but for the most part, to your point, this film, the women in this movie are, are not just empowered, but like they're defined. They're defined in a way that is just very sort of um, 
as I said, very specific and very kind of subtle and nuanced. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So um, I just on a, on a kind of side note, whatever, I, 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 one of the things that I don't think works in this film uh, that I really didn't like was the score. <laughs> um it is uh it's not good um i I just found it really heavy-handed i felt like the emotions were there and it 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 was in fact it was so heavy-handed that it felt it you know miramax was known for getting involved in post and fucking with movies that they felt like they weren't working or doing things that they felt like they needed to uh and this score felt like they were just like they're not going to get it unless we absolutely hammer them over the head with some of the emotional beats. That's my two cents worth on the score. Yeah, it's a shame because everything else is so nuanced. Like the cinematography, I thought it was a really yep. great looking movie. Um, obviously shot on film, uh, you know, and, and, and like, yep. uh, you know, she really lets like scenes and, and shots play out and kind of hangs yep. out on moments. You know, the editing is really uh, driven to kind of highlight that sense of intimacy between the characters beautiful um like production design also yeah the score is for sure it kind of is infantilizing i feel like it kind of telegraphs 100 and it, yes. it's like an insult to kind of the sophistication of the, the storytelling yeah it's it's just it's it's really hammy like it's just it's it's just kind of really unnecessarily cloying at times it also weirdly <laughs> reminded me of the score from titanic a little bit at times <laughs> just like those very kind of like that electronic kind of that i don't know that the, the, the melodrama of it that kind of defies the movie a little bit i don't know it makes me wonder <laughs> if people who were involved in this movie from post-production on mm-hmm. thought this was like a traditional romance Mm. and that seems to be like some of the disconnect that some people thought that and i think this this plays into what i was saying in the beginning which is like having a 50 something year old man and a 20 something year old girl woman excuse me um in a romance was never considered taboo i mean the, the you know the great couple of of the, the first century of Hollywood was Bogey and, and Bacall. And he is 30, he was 30 years older than her. And no one said anything about it for years. I've never heard anyone say anything about it to, th- to this day. <laughs> so I think that you'd have to almost not watch the movie to accompany it 
with a score, not watch the movie critically at least, to accompany it with a score like that. But um, it it didn't bother me as much as I think it bothered you. Um, because I just, I guess I just straight up didn't think the music was that bad, but I, I hear what you're saying. It just, I, I think it, 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 there were moments when it took me out of it. Specifically, I thought the credits in particular, like it opens with this just like really over the top score over these kind of oddly, you know, I don't know, maudlin. It's just something about the way that it opened. And then I have to say, it hurt the scene a little bit for me in the parking lot. Um, I think it's a really great scene. Um, and I think just dial the score down a little bit and it would have just knocked it out of the park, but instead it took me out of it a little bit. Sophia Coppola treatment. Like yeah, the band Air should have done the score. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Or Phoenix. Yeah, for sure. Which makes me wonder because, you know, like what the, uh, the big difference between this and American Beauty, aside from everything, um, (laughs) is like, okay, so. American Beauty at a script level could have been finer if it were directed in a less uh well oh I, I want to use the term masculine and also want to use the term insecure. So it's somewhere in in those kind in that kind of world, right? Mm-hmm. This like this mm-hmm. idea of like, well, we gotta make sure everyone knows that we're like, you know, we're for the guy. Okay. Um so, so aside from that, I feel like the packaging of American Beauty was very commercial. Um, and commercial oh, yeah. in, 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 in a forward-thinking way, like that was that Thomas it's Thomas Newman who wrote that score, right? Like, that's a is it that score? Yes, mm-hmm. that's a very yes. famous score. That score was emulated mm-hmm. for the next ten. 12 years and all sorts of different movies and TV shows. The way One of we, his uh, 14 Oscar nominations. That he doesn't no win, yeah. <laughs> um, he never wins. But uh, never wins. The, the, that, score was, that score was very unique. Uh, the way it was shot was very interesting. The way color was used in that movie was very interesting. The heightened performances, the almost Burton-esque um, you know, depiction of the suburbs, like everything about that was heightened. And then when you bring up Sofia Coppola and using air and, and you know, think of Sofia Coppola's movies, which are very stylized in their own way. This movie is not stylized, right? In no, fact, in fact, like this is, you know, I made the joke about it in um in the um the astronaut's wife episode, how that is kind of done sure. in a 90s house style. This is kind of yes. done in the 90s indie house style. Right? Totally, totally. This kind yeah. of feels like Miramax, and Miramax is not really yeah. indie, but Miramax's version of indie. So mm-hmm. I yeah. do wonder if this movie would have been improved or not if a and no shade thrown at Audrey Wells, who I really do think did an amazing job with this movie, but if a more traditional auteur in the Sofia Coppola, you know, vein were to do this movie. Um, well, maybe and- the reason the movie wasn't successful is because the entire industry has so many examples of men in their fifties dating impressionable women in their uh, <laughs> early twenties that want some of their power or want to emulate their careers and, and don't get to have that and are totally disposable. And, you know, people don't want to see that. Well, they don't want to see that kind of figure actually in a realistic fashion. They kind of want the romantic fairy tale of it. And it's so interesting yeah. that a you know, a studio that perpetuated that and caused so much trauma and so harm to women that age, like would have released this film. Like it's so interesting 
you know. I couldn't agree with you more. It's it's antithetical in so many ways to uh to Miramax. And so it's 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 kind of bizarre that they that they that they made it. I mean, this movie is yeah. oddly iconoclastic in the way that it's bucking so many Hollywood kind of conventions, if you will. It's it's just it's interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting that like Harvey Weinstein um, is the producer of a movie that's literally about all of the incredibly uh, horrific behavior that he perpetuated throughout his entire career. I think Harvey Um, Weinstein probably, I I, I think he probably (laughs) saw this movie and saw himself and Stephen Ray in a positive way. Um, probably i do probably. i think he i think he thought okay some of them you know some, some some of the guys who like the younger girls like every guy um we all like the younger girls right well you know some of them aren't quite as successful as me harvey weinstein and like you know it's good if i'm able if i could do the Stephen ray thing but actually offer them a three-picture deal like i'm a great guy i'm the good version of this guy this guy just wants to be me and that'd be okay so that doesn't seem that weird to me what what's that's fair what i love about it is all right so to what you guys are saying this movie could never be made by a man, period, full stop. It, it just couldn't because the, mm-hmm. the, the conclusions it draws, a man wouldn't come to. Um, um, just like we talked about, again, I don't know why Astronaut's Wife can come, he's coming up, but why men <laughs> are obsessed with making movies about pregnancy and they always do a bad job. Um, because we could never understand it. Pregnancy is not bad or good. Pregnancy is not fun or not fun or scary or or serene. It is a lot of different things at once. And American Beauty depicts this relationship as just a great time, just a hot, sexy time. Whereas this movie depicts this relationship as not all bad, not all good, not all manipulative, not all positive, a lot of really interesting things happen over the course of this relationship between these two characters. And like she says in the beginning of the movie, a line that I would have hated if they didn't actually follow through was, I don't know if he was the best man I ever met or the worst man I ever met. Cause you really don't, you know, he's neither of those things in the end of the day, but he is neither of those things. And in a lot of movies, you are going to land on a, you're like, fucking autumn in new york he's the best man you ever met and in the bad version of this movie he's like you know an old ass rapist and he's the worst man you ever met like it's just the the multitudes in this relationship uh i just don't think a man would have gone there gone there is the right way to put it. i think that's what's cool about it and it kind of goes back to ebert's point of sort of how they're both a projection for each other like she needs Stephen Ray's character to um, feel like she has a chance of kind of making herself over in a different identity and an artistic capacity that's separate from her family. And then he needs her mm-hmm. to kind of feel, I mean, he kind of needs a perpetual standing Guinevere to, to feel like he's yeah. artistically relevant again and that he has like- He needs the validation. Yeah, yeah vitality yeah. in his life. And I, I what yeah. it, cool about this movie is that there are moments where the relationship isn't this glamorous um fantasy and there's kind of cracks and fissures Mm -hmm. in the reality of of actually that he is not a successful artist and he is Mm -hmm. a bit pathetic and um yeah there's the, the the scene where she takes the camera is one of the best scenes in the movie as well oh yeah when 
in the car um, when she finally like takes a picture. Um, it's it's teeth that have just fallen out. Oh, like, that I, yeah. I mean, I, I'll talk about that for hours. That is, I know. That is yeah. one of the great yeah. like that. That is a script move, and that is one of the great script moves I've ever seen. No um, other movie would show like uh like the sexy yeah. older man breaking his teeth on like what is it like a taco or something? Yeah. It's yeah, it's like a sandwich. Some old yeah. it just shows it just shows oldness. <laughs> oh, I broke my teeth on the sandwich. Impotency and, <laughs> and embarrassment and like yeah. the veneer yeah. just being shattered in front of him in front of her. I I couldn't believe and it. And not it, having the money. And oh, then needing to that. sell the camera. Movie. Like, you're just like, it's it's so, brutal. That, so that, and this gets to another point, because you said, that you, you, as you said, it's not gla- it wasn't glamorous. I'd also say that the downs weren't glamorous, right? Yeah. So, like, mm-hmm. I, as Phil knows, I love A Star is Born, but it kind of treads on similar territory. The Bradley Cooper movie? Yes. I love With, that movie, too. Oh, I love it so much. There you go. And it, but it does kind of mine similar territory, and it doesn't almost in any way uh, make the kind of comments that Guinevere makes on it makes makes about it. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing about A Star Is Born, and it, A Star Is Born is just pure Hollywood. Like I love every fucking second of it. It just it it works for me on such a deeply emotional level because it pulls all the levers of like this is what I want movies to do with me, do for me, but. The downs are glamorous. These are like drug fueled, vase throwing fights. People <laughs> dragged out of pools and That's like right. dragged out of tubs and gorgeous hotel rooms in the back, backstage, and all this shit. Like even like even even like like his death is kind of fucking glamorous. Oh yeah, so, it's in that great garage, yeah. in that beautiful house. Like that's cool a way part. to go out. That's a Jim Morrison death. So yes. like. This, this, nothing about this is good or sexy or romantic or glamorous. No. Yeah. It's, 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 it's so strong. Like, like the, the, the nuance, the, the, um, the one, the, the subduedness of it all yeah. is so the powerful. Subtlety of it. Yeah. It's so yeah, yeah, powerful yeah. to me. Yeah. So. Because that it's is, a really, it's, yeah. Sorry, go, that go is ahead, the John. reality. It's the Stephen Ray of it all, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The fact that um, Sarah Polly has like her original teeth, like I've never seen teeth. Like, yes. In it, and, like, and she's, she's got like beautiful, yeah. but she looks like a real person, and it's always like the realism is always foregrounded, and the cynicism of those other women, and the kind of mix mm-hmm. of like I, I think that last scene with all of those women at the the table where they're all talking about their different relationships with him as he's dying. And, you know, you see this kind of range of emotion. You know, you have this really, his mm-hmm. new young girlfriend that's, like, ab- absurdly upset. You have some women that can, like, barely shed a tear for him and just think he's pathetic. You have some that yeah. are almost, like, nostalgic for what's happened or some that, you know, have just... I feel like Sarah Polly's character has just finally point the process enough trauma that she can actually go back to see him and not kind of have so much resentment for him anymore. It's really interesting. It's, it's, yeah, I mean, it's pretty incredible that we can talk about these. Like, it's a testament to this film that all of these really complex ideas can exist within it. Yeah. Um, But it makes me mad that it's not part of like the essential uh, film canon that, you know, even I, a a woman making movies, like, I, I always just kind of assumed that Guinevere was like super lame. (laughs) (laughs) It has, it has a super lame title. Um, yeah, 
And him calling her Guinevere. Ugh, makes me dry up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get in there a little bit. Wow. Um, Can I just, I I want to just say one thing here before we. (laughs) I just want to say one thing. It was like, I shall now call you Princess Guinevere. Here you are on your throne. I'd be like, "Uh, I got Tinder date is over. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you, I, I don't know if you guys know. I mean, like, I had to look it up, so I'm not trying to act like some kind of fucking English major genius. But did you guys look up Guinevere, like in the King Arthur myths, like what her thing was? I mean, I that's all, all I know is she was his his girl, right? Yeah, but she like cheated on him with Lancelot. Like she like kind of okay. brought that. She like kind of brought down the uh, you know the Arthurian Empire, you know, okay. because she's all a right. harlot, of course. Um, it's, it's, sure. it's not, I mean, there are other, you know, there are other books, apparently, I don't know, but there are other books where she's treated more, um, more thoughtfully, but in general, I don't okay. think, uh, I don't think Guinevere is a particularly sympathetic character and it does just kind of feel like it's a nice word to say, Guinevere, 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 like, yeah. and more of like, and it looked nice in the title. So, you know, it lost, definitely lost a point for, for its title and over. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't, I don't love the name. Um, but I, I just want to quickly rewind for one quick second, just cause it's worth noting. And I think it, it speaks to, uh, the Sarah Pauly component of, of not just this film, but of her career and, and, and what she, you know, would go on to make. But, uh, apparently during this non-union shoot in San Francisco, crew members struck and she joined the picket line. So the striking crew members reported that uh, they were quite touched by her action, which was more than a gesture, but rather a sincere belief in workers' rights. On her part, Polly called her union, the Screen Actors Guild, to tell them of her action, and the union representative told her that they'd back her if she crossed the picket line. So SAG assumed that she was calling to ask whether she could defy the protest. Shocked and dismayed, Polly stayed out with the strikers and the strike ended after three days when their grievances were met. Subsequently, Polly has stated that she has been told that she lost several job offers due to this incident as producers didn't want a union quote unquote militant, despite the film industry being a craft industry dominated by guild union system. Uh, and I just think it's very interesting. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's a political activist, you know, as a teenager, she famously, I think like punched a RCMP officer or she got Correct. her teeth knocked out by an yeah, RCMP yeah. officer in a protest. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, you know, like, uh, I think after this experience, it's like she just, she's been very public about the fact that she just didn't want to kind of play this Hollywood industry group no. and become yeah. like a Gretchen Mole or something. You know, there's so many sure. other actresses yeah. of her caliber that um, did play the kind of game and were sort of um, at the behest of someone like Harvey Weinstein. And, Sometimes it worked out for them. Sometimes they became like a Gwyneth Paltrow and won sure. an Academy Award for Shakespeare in Love. But there's so many other women that um, were just kind of like brutalized by that experience. Absolutely. And the yeah. fact that she I, became such a formidable filmmaker after that is is like a huge testament to just the amount of intelligence that she yeah. has. And it's such an emotional, cerebral performance also. I was just going to say, it, it's, it's one of those things where – Yes, she's obviously, I mean, Sarah Polly is obviously uh, brilliant and the fortitude she has and the zero fucks that she gives and and the pushes that she does. And I think it's great. Um, But I also think that Harper in lesser hands would have seemed far less, not, not even just articulate, but just 
Sarah can do things without words. And there's just this there you sense the layers that's going on. You sense the 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 conflicts that are going on inside Harper. I mean, just looking at like to talk about to get into the plot of it, you know, the film opens, she's at her sister's wedding, uh played by Emily Proctor, and uh she does she meets Connie outside and he tells her that he's a photographer and she specifically says, Please don't take my picture. Now, again, that this is a scene where just the way that they look each look at each other, just what you can see the gears moving in her head. Like there's just it's it's really it's really special what she brings to the character. Yeah, I mean, if you have an actress like that and it's your first time as a writer director, I think she makes your job very easy. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because like she's filling out these layers in your script that you don't even know are there. And hundred yeah, um, percent. Do you guys think that they have good chemistry though? That's a very um, that's a very loaded question, Chandler. <laughs> Be- because, well, it's it's. I mean, they have to have good chemistry, otherwise, like the whole they, movie kind of hinges on that. Yeah, they. I. I. Maybe I'm just a. Maybe I'm just a homer for the movie. I think they have the chemistry they're supposed to have, right? Like I. A weird I, chemistry. Which is to say, like, <laughs> yeah. Which is to say. <sighs> It's not perfect. Like it, it would be yeah. if if it were perfect. If it were perfect and it transcended the age difference, because I think that's mm-hmm. plausible in a movie, right? I think that. I think, frankly, I think A Star Is Born does that. So if it transcended the age difference, um, then I think it kind of undercuts a lot of what this movie's trying to do. So it's not perfect. But it, there is something there. I get why she goes back. You know, I, I get like that, and particularly in contrast to her shitty ass family. But like, I get why she goes back. <laughs> I think that um, to that point, I think that there are moments when I completely bought them. Um, generally speaking, or or at least one of them that I can pinpoint was uh, I think when he was. Not when he throws her this birthday party later, but I like, like there's the a there's a, a I like the birthday party fine, even though I don't understand the 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 people that are there, but no, that's neither here nor there. There's like the same children thing. and old people, you know and I'm just like, who are I, these people? I want to say like I I, I have my, my notes for like, Phil. I don't mean to just cut you off, so please don't forget. But I have my notes for this, and I was just looking over it like at some point, and and my, I I think I spent eighty percent of this movie being like, I think I hate it, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I think I might hate this, but like, and then at one point, like I just call it out. I'm like, but do I hate this or I love this? So that birthday party scene still happened while I hated it. And I was still like on some, like, I'm some like, all right, this is a predator. Like, so I'm like, so I'm like, where is he finding all of these accomplices? Because that's what they are. Yeah. You have like, 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 it was so weird. Who wants to join me? Who wants to join me for my, my college student girlfriends? birthday party and everybody in town is like oh, we're there I know. so um but yeah. now that i now that i don't think he's <laughs> can you be but two things point- can you still be a can you be a thoughtful predator it's very hard to say but i want to I, I i what i was what i was going to say was um there's a moment and it's before that birthday party where they're just having people over i think at, at, at his loft or whatever and she's in the center of some sort of a situation i think it might be a cake or something yeah and she and and she is just glowing it's and i'm just like it's i get it because harper has been living her life 
as some sort of a wallflower or someone who just doesn't feel loved or doesn't feel cared about. And now there's all these people in a room and she's got this spotlight on her and she can just blossom and be this thing that she wants to be like, that's incredibly special. And that made me buy into their relationship. That being said, the scenes when they're uh, sexual together, no. <laughs> like they do they are they are no. not like it was gross um so, but like oh the scene yeah. where she's sitting on his lap and he's like yeah uh, don't like it and don't like it yeah. Yeah, you, might, like, you might not supposed yeah. to, you might not supposed you, you may not supposed to like it uh the scene you're talking <laughs> about the question you know and i feel like um that's a real um interesting thing about i think when women get under the the camera right and and, and do these sex scenes because in mm-hmm. American Beauty, when he's putting his hand down under the bathtub covered yeah. of rose petals and, and Mina Savari is, you know, yeah. orgasmically responding, it's like, ooh, sure. this is pure cinema. This is a Fellini movie right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> re- but that's also, there's a magic realism to, to uh, not not to, I'm not making excuses for American Beauty. I'm, in fact, I think yeah, I'm agreeing with you and, and underlying yeah. that the fantasy Do, of well, it. The dream sequence. It's not magic realism, yeah. right? So it's a, it's a dream sequence. I would also say, like, it's very there, stylized for sure. Yeah, there, there but the no. reality of these relationships is that it actually yeah. is you, you know, uncomfortably sitting on a chair while Stephen really like reaches down below your Levi's, and you're like, "Ew, I don't yeah. like this." Why am I here? Just call me, <laughs> call me this, one of your dad here. Like <laughs> I think that more when when you see female subjectivity at work. Um, it is uncomfortable and it does make you think. And I think it isn't financially successful a lot of the time because we haven't seen like the full range of expression of what happens when women yep. get behind the camera and actually tell their own stories. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Audrey Welch totally. had an experience like this because she writes so truthfully about it that how could she not have been a Guinevere at some point? Yeah, I mean, I think to your to your point, Chandler, I think what makes that scene upsetting is the realism of it, right? Like to your point, when you're watching that scene, you just you you don't want to watch that, right? Like you want to turn away because it feels too real. I, I would say the same about the scene when he seduces her for the first time and says, "I want to see your form" and all that <laughs> sort of nonsense. It's so gross. Um, and 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 how quickly he's able to get her pants off like almost before she even really notices what's happening and that shot that wide shot of her like running basically like scurrying to one end of the couch um and saying you know i you know i need to be able to say no and and i reserve the right to say no and 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 then she attacks him and kisses him but um it's again like these are very complicated like hot button things that she's navigating incredibly well. And I, I think when women are in this position in relationships, you know, it is, it's hard mm-hmm. to understand in your own mind if you like it or yeah. if you don't. Um, sure. And there, it, it, even if it's a fully consensual, like romantic relationship where you are in love, you look back at it and you go, was it okay that I was dating that like man in his thirties or forties? What was that about? You know? And, and yep. I think so much of the time it's women, wanting to be that person themselves and they think that sure. kind of the romantic yeah. relationship is sort of the way to approximate it or they don't know like everything is kind of a projection of our own well, sort of fantasies and desires i but- also remember being a a younger person in my 20s and being in hollywood and thinking how am i ever going to compete with these guys who have money right. 
and their cars and they live alone and they clean their shit up and they know how to cook and they can take they can go on a vacation and they like and all this shit they clean their shit up like they don't have takeout boxes everywhere um, they, don't, they don't have water bottles strewn throughout their cars how, what chance do i have so yeah. i and and but look at you now. You paused during your own podcast because you had to. You were cooking a meal. Oh, I wasn't cooking it. My wife. Well, someone was else was it. cooking the meal. My my, my older wife. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I'm the Guinevere now. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but that. But uh, but I, I, which is to say, I recognized just how seductive that lifestyle would be to someone who's living like me. You know, someone who's living in a sure an apartment on Olympic Avenue with two other people my age and leaving takeout boxes strewn about. Now, most women didn't do that, but some did. So, <laughs> I mean, I think it's I, I I just think it's I think it's very interesting to see how um, I guess just you know how essentially. Uh, they slow play their relationship as well. Mm-hmm. And the idea that like she stays over, but he spends the night in his dark room. The first um, time. Yeah. The first time. Right. This, this idea of, of sort of trying to, uh, you know, he's, he's, I'm, I, I don't know if seducing is the right word as it is that he's sort of warming the water and not trying to scare her away. I would say I seducing guess is, sort is of the, the right word. Okay. But it's so part of the seduction. When, yeah. Um, Sure, sure. He makes that offer for her to, to live with him. And she, yes. and, and she kind of asks, like, is it conditional on us? Like, yeah. am I going to sleep? And, yeah. you know. I do love that she, this is one of my favorite lines that, and the way that Sarah Polly delivers it, but she says, oh, you're mistaking me for someone with potential. Oh. <laughs> Which is, is like, the, the, the breadth of that scene, when you think about, it goes from basically like she's giggling. She's like, there's a lot of like uncontrollable laughter. She's just not used to this situation or, or more importantly, finds it a little bit sort of embarrassing to some degree or another. And then him slowly kind of getting her comfortable enough that she goes and sits on the couch and he's able to just kind of talk to her from a distance. I mean, it honestly feels like he's trying to like, tame or, or corral some sort of an animal yeah it's, it's, it's it want to be there and yeah it's so interesting yeah. when you realize later that it's like a pathological thing and he's done this like, yeah. multiple times Five and times. kind of yep um, who else could deliver that line because i i, I don't have the, the answer is nobody i mean anybody could say yeah. those words but nobody she else could deliver so well. that line in a way that doesn't fucking destroy that character mm-hmm. yep yep no and and again, it's because I, I think it's I think honestly part of it it's it's the emotional intelligence, but it's just the straight up intelligence that Sarah Polly brings to her characters. I mean, Kenny and I have both talked. We've talked. We did an episode on Go, and we talk about that first chapter of Go, which is She's the so Sarah Polly chapter. She's amazing. so fucking good in that movie, yeah. and she brings so much depth to it, and and that sardonic intellectualism, all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. that she brings to it, um, that. Yeah, it's just it's on some level it's a shame that we don't have more performances from her. But to Kenny's point, she kills that line because of everything she brings. She, to she it. could do anything. She really could. I mean, it is too bad we don't yeah. have more more performances from her. But um, you, we have splice. You, you so think we of that? You think of <laughs> no, uh She is so 
cool in that movie in a high status kind oh, of yeah. way. She high status is like, everybody. Like she's in a Tarantino movie. Like, yep. She's just, she's the exact opposite. She's, she's pure confidence in that movie. Yeah. Even in yeah. the scene with Tim Lee Oliphant where it's possible she's going to get killed, she is yep. confident and cool. Yep. So, yeah. like, I just, you know, she's, she's a remarkable actress. And in a weird way, it almost makes sense that she said, fuck this shit. Because this shit yeah. is not, is not for someone like yeah. her, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it's, I, it's I, so I funny because, sorry, go ahead. Very many Guinevere's as a young actress that age either. I mean, how many scripts was she getting, you know, how that were even like uh, up to the standards of what she must have been looking for. And I mean, it's, it's speaking of go, I mean, it was, it was a process to get her to do go. I mean, Lyman has talked about how, you know, how hard it was to get her to make that movie. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is because of the fact that she, I think she knew, right? She knew I can fucking kill this thing and it's going to be big, you know, it's going, or at the very least, like, it's going to make an impression. Like, when I think about that first line she has in Go, where the woman at the cashier is saying, like, you didn't double coupon. She says, I did look at the coupon where it says double coupon. She says something along the lines of, yeah. I used to be you. You're not better than you think you are. And she says, look at where it got you. Like, <laughs> it's just that one fucking thing. And you're just like, oh, she's a fucking star. Like, yeah. she can do anything. Yeah. And, you know, and, and. To her credit, she's like, yeah, I'm getting the fuck out of here is what I'm doing. <laughs> so, but, um, yeah. So then we, we're at this point in the movie where basically Connie has be, convinced her to oh, stay with him. Sir, oh, okay. before we do this, I have another game. Oh, no. All right. Sarah Polly more or less goes away as an actress around 2000, 2001, right? She does what, My Correct. Life Without Me, which is excellent yes. as well. And, and she does the Hal Hartley movie, that weird no such thing movie. Oh yeah, that's right. So what year and is her she, last real? Um, I mean, Splice was her last movie, and that was probably in the mid two thousands. All right, so I'm having a hard time with this game in my own head. What <laughs> great? What movie do you yes. wish Sarah Polly starred in oh, post two thousand and five? Post two thousand five? Yeah, after she like after she was gone. Oh, like what? Like that's a, what that's did we lose? Because I don't. I, as you guys are thinking, I don't yeah, even really please. have a uh, someone who took her spot, like the next Sarah mm -hmm. Polly up. You know that, that like that's not. It's not even worth discussing. But it's like I have one. Yeah, go for it. I have one that I that that I think is sort of an answer to your question. Um, I think she and and I loved I loved Greta Gerwig in 20th Century Women, but I actually think that yep. Sarah Pauly could have been great in that role. It's a good answer. It's a good yeah, answer. She could have been really good. Though I would How say, is, Sarah is she like a little bit older than Greta Gerwig? She's she has the same like birthday 40. as me. She's one year older than no, me. 40, I'm not going to say how old she <laughs> she's is. 41. She's 41. She's 41. So I, I I feel you on that Phil, a lot. Like I think she would have been great in that role and great in that movie and fit really nicely. I'm thinking about. Or at least I'm trying to think of a lead yeah. role, right? Yeah, like yeah. I'm th trying to think of like I think one of your, and you know, um, not discounting what Chandler said about it kind of being Stephen Ray's movie. I think of it as a Sarah Polly movie, and mm -hmm. I think the first third of Go was clearly a Sarah Polly yeah. movie, and I think uh, I think that we we are missing something that could have been really essential, like the like 
you know, Greta Gerwig, I guess, did it for a while where Noah Baumbach was mm-hmm. making these Greta Gerwig movies. Um, but I wonder what like like that would be. I don't really have it. I mean, I, I don't really have the answer. You know, another another answer that that is a little bit weird, but I'm going to throw it out there. And it's not really, again, it's not really the answer to your question in terms of like a leading role. The movie that comes to mind for a leading role is weirdly The Ring. Like, I actually think she could have been really yeah, cool in the answer. Naomi Watts role in that. That's a really good um, answer, Phil. Shocking. I, still find it. Uh, I feel like I can't think of anything. It's almost like a movie would have to be invented to contain her, you know? It's like yeah. because of, yeah. of who she is, like, the movie would have been built around her and we would have had that mm-hmm. movie. But I can't I'm going to give one, I'm going to give one other role that I think is. Kind of comes to mind, but. What was that? Oh, she could have been great in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Eternal Sunshine. Oh yeah. I would like to see her. Now this is before 2005, and this isn't a lead role, but I think she would have fucking killed it in the (laughs) Hillary Swank role in Insomnia. Oh, Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because I love. I actually like the idea of her as almost a France McDormand and Fargo s cop. And yeah. I always felt like Hillary Swank was the weak was the the weak link in that movie. It didn't make a lot of sense to me, but I I love that idea. the The other thing, again, this is actually like a two thousand movie, and this would never be here. But this is the kind of role I would have loved to see her play is in uh, the Contender. There's that reporter. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Who wound up going on to be in Cold Case, so she's a billionaire now. But um, <laughs> but that kind of role, that like dogged smart you know but tough and i don't know those kind of things yeah i mean i think she's the other role she would make a really good um she would make a really good uh i should know this name clarice starling yeah oh yeah 100 sure for sure she has like Jodie foster's you know I also think she's like she's weirdly she is really funny, and I don't know yeah. that she ever did a ton of funny roles. I actually think she could have been interesting in the Cameron Diaz role in being John Malkovich. Oh, oh. she would have um, been really great. Yeah. yeah, like I think that she's got like you know she's she really could have done anything, um, and I think she would have succeeded. Um, but it's it, it's yeah, it's it's just one of those things where you just look at her and just say like. Yeah, I mean, whatever you want, I you know, you, on, you like, could do Orange it. Orange is the new black, like that would have been cool. Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I, um, I really so, love Diane Kruger yeah. in the uh, in the bridge on FX. Yes, but yes. that would have been good for her. As oh, well. the Melanie, for sure. The Melanie Laurent role in Beginners, if that Beginners for sure. Role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mike Mills. Yeah, yeah there because there's something about what he does that that does kind of for sure. Her. Yeah. I think she's, I mean, she very much fits in that like Miranda July, Mike Mills kind of universe. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, she's, she's endlessly fascinating. And um, yeah, I mean, I just wish she, I wish she acted more, but and she's a, um, I, yeah. like a, almost like a, a bit of a coldness in certain roles that is mm-hmm. actually kind of extraordinary that you don't get to see from actresses. Like she kind of, yep. like, even though the, camera like she's so the camera loves her so much it's also kind of like mm-hmm. she doesn't need the camera the way that like other actresses are like very actressy and kind of like see me see totally me. that's a really good way of i would that. i would actually have loved to have seen her play the anna torv character on manhunter uh sorry mindhunter oh, and um uh, anna gross 
and so, I, well, I, I like Anna Torv. I think she's great, but um, oh, I, I just would have, yeah. Oh, and then I also great as sorry to interrupt. Mm. Yeah, um, go ahead. Walter White's wife on Breaking Bad. <laughs> she she would she would have been much better. <laughs> <laughs> you mean Anna Gunn's uh, Emmy Award winning performance? She won an Emmy. <laughs> she did. She won an Emmy. Yeah, yeah you know. I mean, I have thought that's worth. I have thought about the, discor- the discourse around that one that will remain. I think that I think that uh, she's good on Mad Men too. Yeah, uh, not as pecky. I don't. If that's where we're going, not as no. pecky. I don't know that she. I, weirdly, I'm not sure that I see her. She doesn't really work in period pieces that well. Um, like that, that the movie, 70s, The Claim. She works really well in. Hmm? From the seventies, she works. Really That's what I'm well. I was going to say. Like, yeah. if she played uh, uh, Chloe Sevengi's role in Zodiac, for instance, or something oh, like man. that, where you're just like, I could absolutely see her killing that. I'm just not sure that I could. I don't know what she'd look like in the fifties. But um, back to Guinevere. Um, at this point in the film, basically, uh, Connie gets a camera for her from a pawn shop, and the pawn shop attendant clearly looks like he's done this a million times before. With like <laughs> the look on the woman's face, uh, it was just like Ugh. so much. Um, yeah, yeah, there's so many painful looks. Like the, uh, the, I keep thinking about the scene in the restaurant where they're having like a, they meet for coffee, and then the guy in the restaurant yeah. is sitting there and like looks at her and mm-hmm. gives Connie like a like a yeah. So yeah, it's so gross. It's so gross. Yeah. Um, And then basically she moves in. I hate hate that moment, but not just because it's gross. Um, (laughs) I hate that moment because it seems to be an attempt to contrast what Stephen Ray does versus what that guy does. Mm. And it's really heavy handed. Um, Yeah. You know, it's just it's really just it's a heavy handed way of getting that out. I agree a hundred percent. So then basically there's one of the best scenes in the movie is the scene at the birthday dinner where um, with the fortune cookies. Oh my God. You know what I'm talking about? The you know, I got feelings oh about that one. All of cinema. What are your thoughts? What would, are your would, thoughts you, would you say the best dinner in all of cinema? Best one liner. Like, like what a, what a button on that scene. For- <laughs> oh, oh, well the, the, all right. It's the best depiction of rich people I have ever seen. <laughs> Period. Full stop. I will tell you why. Okay. Everything about it's amazing. Rich people are bored. Okay? That's one of the main things. That's what that's – what, um, this is so embarrassing. Succession? No, what's her name? Um the actress Jean Smart. Jean Smart. That's what Jean Smart is playing, right? We're bored. Mm-hmm. We are looking for fun. I have played every game. I'm now playing it with my children. That is a rich people move. No question about it. That is bore right. on the floor. That is like, you know, you are just pawns to me. But the moment that really strikes me as like, oh, you are so rich. You have lost the fucking plot <laughs> is how the scene starts when she says, sorry, we couldn't get you a cake. We wanted the restaurant to bring one over, but they're Chinese, so they're probably blowing up a duck or something. So I guess it's fortune cookies for dessert. So hateful. Any reasonable mother would bake their kid a cake. <laughs> That's what you do. You bake the well, cake. Not even that. Just go to the grocery store. And if you are buy a cake? the kind of person who is going to bake a cake, Go to the grocery yep. store and buy a cake. It is yep. so 
fundamentally important. If you are the laziest of the lazy, you do what she did, which is call the restaurant and say, can you bring me a cake? I've never even and heard of that. Neither have I. But it, but I, I could see it happening, a place that has dessert, I guess. And if that is impossible, <laughs> you don't just give up and give fucking fortune cookies. But, but who's getting someone, a cake from a Chinese restaurant? That doesn't nobody. even make any sense. Yeah. Someone, who, someone who doesn't live in the real world, yeah. right? Someone who doesn't understand that you can't just buy your way out of every single problem. And someone who also looks at getting your kid a birthday cake as a problem – Instead of something to celebrate and something to enjoy totally, with that totally. person. So that from that beginning into the, the in-bed game, which made me fucking roll my eyes before it played out so beautifully and brilliantly. <laughs> Everybody in that scene played it so well. Perfectly. Oh, yeah. The boyfriend that's like scared oh, to speak. I love that. The husband, I guess. And, and with the shrimp that he can't pick up with oh, the chopsticks. And then at the very end, she's like, just pick it up. Pick the Waldo Salt. Award was given in that scene. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dude, it's Holly's a great scene. brilliant line about, you know, <laughs> you will be rammed in the ass by a 12 inch cock in bed. I, you know, we in the context of this. Feels kind of redundant. Yeah. <laughs> Scenes. And, yeah. yeah. Basically, she wants the the mom is like, I played this hilarious game with my friends where we added uh, in bed to every sentence. Let's try it with this fortune cookies. Which everybody played. 25 in, years like ago. grade school and yeah. Now, yeah. now you know you I've, I've seen this from people who may be my mother think that something from 25 years ago is now cool and funny and it's so inappropriate and so horrible go ahead yep and people just had generic uh, you know fortunes like you know you will have great success in bed and then oh <laughs> Does that and it's just it's yeah. unbelievable. It's, so it's like everything because I, I also think that routine. we're not we're not talking about one of the things that I think adds just beautiful tension to the scene, which is that they dial up the sound of the cracking of the cookies <laughs> as they're breaking them open, and each time it happens, it's just like oh, it's just fucking brutal. But I but I want to say like the actual last line, I believe not the I believe the last line is just pick up the shrimp. But oh, Jim yeah. Smart's last line was "fuck this family." Mm-hmm. Wow, you don't play by her fucking rules, as twisted and toxic as they are. Fuck mm-hmm. this family. Wow, you. I mean, oh, you get right there why she is why Sarah Polly is running to the nearest fifty three year old wedding photographer who doesn't, <laughs> yeah, yeah. doesn't tell her to go eat shit every day. Yep. So yeah. it, it's so who then who then throws her this like surprise birthday party yeah, and makes her feel like a million bucks. That's a nice mirror to that scene, actually. Yeah. Yeah. It does. It, it, it's yeah. No, it's, it's ahead, brilliantly sorry. contrasted. This movie is subtly about a kind of an even just in a very undercover way about uh, how horrible it is to be a part of a toxic family. And to be suffering mm-hmm. emotional abuse from your parents all the time, and how people mm-hmm. who are in that situation are going to run to any port in the storm, even if the port in the storm is like you know the fucking floorboards are, are crackling off and has barnacles yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. like it yeah. is probably better 
for Sarah. And he Pollock's wants to make you read like a bunch of Germaine Greer books that you're not interested in. <laughs> 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 um, but then shortly after this scene, we have the scene we were talking about, which is when her mother, Deborah, shows up and has that brutal takedown of, of Connie, um, which is fantastic. Uh, and basically Connie kind of freaks out and he says what Harper the next day tells him that she might move out eventually or that they should find a place together. Like he doesn't, he gets all fucking witchy and cagey on her in that scene. Yeah. She thinks Um, she's thinking about getting her own apartment and, but she still wants to look at it and approve it with her. Which is weird. Um, weird And then there's this kind of additional limit on the relationship too. Like he just keeps saying like, all I want is like five years of your time and then you can, Leave me it's so weird. whatever you want. Five years to become like a great artist, but mostly just like have sex with me and, and be my like arm candy. Like, yeah, it's really yeah. strange. And it's like there's this kind of term limit, almost like a presidency or something. Wow. Like, you know, there's a there's a famous actor who seems to have a term limit. I don't know if you know mm. what I'm talking about, but um, I don't. There's a famous actor okay. uh, who who see who 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 only dates women who are like 26 and under. And when they get to 26, he dumps them. Do you know who I'm talking oh. about? I think I have a general perhaps idea. It's everybody's favorite actor, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, I was going to say uh, that's who I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio seems to have this exact same deal. It's like when you're 26, you you, you know, you leave the nest. Oh, so. man. <laughs> and until fly. Then you have to fly, birdie, fly. I know, it's like you think you're in Bar Raphael air forever. But like, no, she was 26 and on to the next. So. Um, so then Harper comes home to find Connie out cold, drunk on the floor. Then they kind of go on this road trip together, That's which leads us. It, it, it really kind of it. The descent starts from here, where it's like then he breaks his teeth, and then it's like selling the camera in order to to fix his teeth. Um, and another thing and, about that is yeah. like in another movie, like that. All right, so the symbolism is thick with that one, right? It's like yeah. um, there's you know there there's there's. Uh, you know, like kind of phallic significance with selling the lens and there is emotional significance with selling his way, his, his way to make money and way to kind of provide and way to be a man. Like, like that's, it's, it's laid on really thick. Like anybody could pick up on it, but because it has such a strong application in the plot or the narrative, yeah. you ignore it, you let it be. And now I just yeah. think the symbolism is really kind of strong and wonderful so much. So like, I bet even this character, recognize the symbolism mm-hmm. in his own life and that's powerful mm. to me so i think that i to- i totally agree it's little things like that it's things that like in other movies and in other hands you'd be like you think i'm an idiot like i can't realize what you I, I can't figure out what you're doing but the way it's handled here um as just kind of the 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 first the the, the first move in a negotiation with the audience like mm-hmm. i get you're smart to see what i'm doing now i'm going to play with it a little more I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. I I also really love. Um, so we're now at the at the scene where uh, they're driving back. They're basically um, they're driving back from the friend of his who he was trying to hit up for money to try to buy some of his photos or just to basically get him money. And they're in the car, and Sarah Polly starts to laugh because she still never got to take a picture. And then she grabs her camera and starts sort of like manically taking pictures of him. And it's the only time we see through the lens of a camera is when yeah. Harper's holding yeah. the camera it's and when so she's great. pointing it at him. It's yeah. fucking great. And it's, it's really, really great. bleeding and he's like covering his mouth and it's great. And it's, it's very grotesque. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. 
And then basically the film kind of comes to a climax at this L.A., this kind of like sad, downtrodden L.A. kind of hotel motel where basically Connie kicks her out and says, like, you know, go get us some booze. He gives her obviously way too much money in order to get out of Dodge. Um, and it's he's looking at her as she crosses the, the parking lot um, and she turns, she sees him in the window and then he's gone. I thought he was going to commit suicide in that moment. Like, I so did I. <laughs> well, but then, but then she, she, four years later, she shows up. He's dying of apparently cirrhosis of the liver, is what Wikipedia said. Although I don't think that was ever specifically said. Um, and Harper has a photography career now, and all the Guinevere's uh, get together. Some of whom we've how met, do we some feel? Of whom we haven't. Yeah, how do we feel about this heaven? thing fantasy thing that the film ends with what are our thoughts on that i kind of hate it i feel like it might be (laughs) a sort of um i mean talking about magical realism basically it's funny because the ending it feels so deeply cynical to me but it's almost like this wish fulfillment fantasy that she's giving him in order to move on and and Mm -hmm. okay about you know dying and and she tells him this elaborate story about how he's gonna die he's gonna pass through this kind of hallway and see all see all of his guinevere's young love beautiful women and they'll all be kind (laughs) of like either weeping about his death because he's so wonderful or you know painting a beautiful picture that he's inspired her, her to have and but it's i think it's kind of almost like the movie knows that men like him are deluded and pathetic and you have, and your job yeah. is to make them feel good about themselves. And even when they're dying and, um, and have kind of met the fate that they've deserved, you still have to make them feel good about themselves. And the yeah. emotional, even in death, <laughs> but that's what you're supposed to do. And they'll always find a younger version of you. And your job is just to kind of forget that they even, that you ever met. <laughs> Yeah, it's, I mean, there's, it's, at first, as it was happening, I had similar feelings to what you were saying, Chandler. Like, I was like, I don't like this. This is dumb. But then it's also so fucking cynical about it that I was like, wait, maybe I'm on board with this. That's what I was going to say, because as Chandler was talking about how much he hated it, I'm like, wait, wait. You're talking about this like someone who liked it. (laughs) You're finding a lot. You're finding a lot of value in this. Face flying through the air like he's in the never-ending story. (laughs) But I, (laughs) but I like the cynicism and like acid of it. Kind of badass. I um, yeah, there's something kind of fuck you about it. It's like, oh, we're gonna give you some weird fucking happy ending, but like, what you gotta, you're gonna die, die. Like, shut the fuck up. I felt, I think I feel the same way you guys felt, which is like, (laughs) at the time, I first of all, at the time, I really was like, this the movie should have ended, right? Like, (laughs) the movie should have ended. It should end up there with them. You know, yeah. her being like, I learned some things, but I'm Yeah, different. yeah. I learned some things. He's yeah. bad, he was good, I'm good. Um so I felt like that. But I this is a weird thing to say. Okay, Phil, you're someone who just watched all that jazz, right? Indeed. And all have Chandler, have you seen all that jazz? Yeah, you know what? It's a very similar trajectory. Very similar, right? And it's a very similar kind of ending thing. Except yeah. like in all that jazz, I think it's like kind of Fosse. It goes a little further. Fo- it goes for 45 minutes. But Fosse is giving himself <laughs> that thing. Yeah. Um, whereas in this, like Polly's giving, you know, Stephen Ray this thing. And yeah. the, the 
all I'm going to say is like, I guarantee you, I will never forget how this movie ended. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I mean, that's why I love all that jazz. I mean, I love all that jazz for a million reasons, but I love all that, all that jazz the most because of the, the guy giving a fucking funeral wake crazy ass thing for himself. And I have to, it, like, it's wild and wonderful to me. But I'm never going to forget the way this movie ended. I think about it all the time. I think about death a lot. I think about how, like, um, you know, we all we all have to go at some point. I know this isn't particularly profound, but, like, when you really, really get inside someone's mind as they're about to go, there is something profound about that, profound about how how I'm going to deal with the last moments of my life. And he had a plan and the plan was to have someone, you know, fill his head with, you know, this impossible fantasy sequence. Now I do wonder, I, I, I do wonder what it's ultimately saying about him. Like I do see the, you know, I do see the argument for cynicism and kind of the asses you're talking about. Um, I also kind of feel like there is a little bit of hands throwing up. I don't mean that in a bad way, but like, it almost a person on death row gets the last meal kind of way, you know, that dying mm-hmm. sucks so badly, no matter what, that it's kind of okay. Giving to, them one last, give yeah, someone, moment, give yeah. someone one last yeah. thing before they die. Even when they're, you know, even when they've done terrible things, but there's a lot there. That's kind of, that's what I, that's, it's funny. Cause like when, so they give him a picture of all the Guinevere's topless. Yeah. Um, it, and, and he sort of has this moment and I, and I had the similar feeling you did too, Kenny, which was, they were like, Let's give the guy one last hurrah before he dies. Um, and then he forces the issue and says, like, tell me a fucking story, too. Like, let, give me the greatest. And so there's something about even just in Sarah Polly's delivery that has mm-hmm. a little bit of an edge to it. Yeah. That's sort of like, yeah, I'll fucking give this to you, I guess. Like, I'm not I'm not thrilled to have to, like, <laughs> hold your hand down to the fucking pearly gates. But if I have to do it, I'll do it. And And all of that gives this ending which in anyone else's hands i'm convinced would have just been a disaster somehow kind of finds a way to navigate through it um with its kind of sharpness and jadedness that allows it to exist but these women are this like, last still day. beholden to him it's interesting like why yeah. couldn't yeah. the movie end with a wonderful packed gallery full of people at sarah polly's photography show yeah, he yeah. shows up and he's like, "Oh, that yeah. beautiful picture, of Guinevere. You still got it." <laughs> so Sean Connery shows up. Weird, <laughs> wasn't that? Such a um, that was and then she's like, "Oh, thanks." Um, oh, I sorry, like right. Right. my agent. What? I've got the cover of Vogue next week. Great. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. Why do they have to like all be topless again for his gaze, giving him like another picture of their naked bodies? that he can enjoy. Yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with it that. It doesn't work. It, it, it doesn't feel right. Like, it just, what it, what it, what, it doesn't feel right. And... That's why the movie is, like, ultimately his, I think. Because, like, in another film about, like, a toxic relationship, like, Blue is the Warmest Color is sort of a parallel of, like, a person who's in a toxic relationship with a... who wants to be an artist, and she kind of learns from that experience, and then... At the end, they still have this encounter together. She kind of can't stay away from that person. But the movie's always that character's. And you feel like in Guinevere, like he still has all the power and agency, even in death. Mm-hmm. I agree. 
I mean, it, it, to your point, the unfortunate <laughs> thing is that the, 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 the arc of it, because we end on him as opposed to ending on her, to your point, the movie is kind of grappling with like, whose POV is this? And most of the film is told from her POV. And yet to end the film on his journey is a little bit weird, but I mean, it's what it is. It's Weinstein-y to use a new It's Weinstein is not a word I ever want to hear again. Um, <laughs> so uh, Chandler on this podcast, we rate these movies from zero to 99 um, zero being the lowest, 99 being the highest, uh, 50% being whether or not you would recommend it. Um, and if you saw it in 99, which you didn't, I did. So I'll go first. Uh, in 99, I probably would have given this film like a 70, something like that. Like, I didn't hate it. Sarah Pauly can do no wrong. It's going to, you know, that you, if you've got Sarah Pauly in your movie, you're probably going to get a 70 from me in one way or another. Um, so I liked it. Watching it again with you, you know, for you guys with this. I'm in the 80s now. I think I'm in the like, I'm in the low 80s. I, I think that, you know, I think that there's so much going on in this film. Her performance is great, but also just all the things that we've been able to talk about with this film. I'm just sort of really kind of taken with the layers of it and the complexity of it. And obviously now being able to look at this through the lens of 2020, this film just feels so groundbreaking and so kind of, you know, um, pushing so many boundaries back then, let alone today. So I, I really loved it. But um, Kenny, what did what did you think? Um, uh, I loved it more than you. Ha ha ha! I wrote uh, against all odds. I love that movie. I'm not even sure I can explain it. <laughs> um, I did my best over the course of this podcast to explain why I love this movie so much. Uh, I gave it a 90. I'm sticking with a 90. Um, nice. Deeply love, love it. Deeply loved this movie also deeply love this conversation it's a conversation that i expected a movie like this to be able to bring out i think there yeah. i think we could probably have talked for another hour like we barely mentioned gene smart and not because like she's not worth mentioning like um just because there's this movie's really really dense but um yeah. 90 that's that's good for a movie that love i it. expected to be in the 30s or 40s it was really a shocking and a wonderful experience <laughs> chandler where are you yeah, I really wish this movie had done for Audrey Wells what like a similar Miramax produced Walking and Talking did for Nicole Holub Center. Like I wish we could have gotten right, right. four or five other Guinevere's from from this filmmaker. That, that's happened of- to a lot of female filmmakers from ninety nine. We've seen a <laughs> lot of movies from female filmmakers that we really loved and they never got another shot or another major shot. I mean Kimberly Pierce being one of those yeah, for sure. Right. But, yeah. yeah, the fact that like under the Tuscan sun is just such the opposite of this movie. Yeah. And at least she yep. got to direct a movie. Like, I mean, did Antonia Bird ever direct another movie? Did, um, no. Did, uh, what's her name? Rena Garcia ever direct another movie? Uh, nope. So, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of movies really, li- we really, really like from female directors, but it's just, you know. It makes not- me really sad. I think well, this movie is like an incredibly flawed masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And uh, I totally agree. I think it it deserves kind of like a Criterion rebranding, you know, like oh, that'd be yeah, amazing. Yeah, oh, I'd love that. Or appreciation, almost like the way that like Claudia Weil got rediscovered after Lena Dunham loved that movie Girlfriends. Like, I mm-hmm. really think that this movie like 
I wish I'd kind of known about it. Um, and it, when I was 13, like passing through Blockbuster, I think it would have scared the hell out of me. <laughs> um, but watching it now, like I'm just like deeply appreciative of like the nuances and Sarah Polly is like absolutely um, magnificent performance. And, and like, she really is the author of the movie even more so than I think mm-hmm. the director. Yeah. Um, I would give it like an 82 and it gets it just gets points less because I uh, I don't like the phrase your form. Well, like a Craigslist post I saw once where it was like <laughs> middle aged wanna... man looking for muse to live rent free in his studio loft. Like <laughs> must appreciate the finer things in life. Must let me see her form. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, next week we are doing the astronaut's wife, the aforementioned astronaut's wife, um, that, uh, that Kenny brought up a couple oh, times. Yes. Um, but, uh, we have, uh, Haley Fauch coming on, Fauch, sorry, uh, from Collider, um, and also, uh, the Witching Hour podcast. And, uh, we're going to talk about a movie that basically doesn't exist. Uh, did you know that The Astronaut's Wife existed, Chandler? Is that a movie that you knew about? For some reason, I keep thinking, is Charlize Theron in it? Yeah. She is. Look at you. You're the only person that knows this movie exists. It's Johnny Depp and Charlize Theron. Yeah. And is she sick? I feel like she might be sick. He's, uh, he's impregnated her with his alien baby. Oh. Babies. So Babies, sorry, twice. Whoa, crazy. It's twins. It's a, it's a not I great movie. It's like that movie you said, Autumn in November or what? New York, oh, Autumn yeah. in New York. <laughs> I know it, the astronaut's wife does have the seat. Does have a, a a romantic feel, right? Can I just say that Autumn in November is an amazingly redundant <laughs> title that I really really love. <laughs> <laughs> like the most generic, like yeah. middle age, like everyone's in it's the sweater. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, pretty good, fun. Autumn November. Well, it's you know, it's real, really good. Let's yeah. write Autumn in November and get rich. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, Do it. Astronaut's Wife, not great. Astronaut's Wife next week, podcast not good. about it, very good. So great podcast. We really enjoyed that podcast um, with uh, with Haley. We no. did, we did. As we did this, yes, Chandler. It. Thank you so so much. This was everything I could have wanted it to be. Oh, we hope that you will come back for. for hope fun. you'll come back for another movie. One of and Claire uh, <laughs> Polly, if you're listening, um, be in a movie again because you're such a. Great we love you yeah, and be in, be in another movie. movie. Yeah, because yeah. you're a wonderful writer and director. Too. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.